Welcome. This is episode two of your MedMal podcast, Discovering the Needle. Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. In this podcast, we look at anonymized true examples of how a behind the scenes, non-testifying nurse consultant was able to quickly locate, isolate, and articulate the core issues in common and not so common medical malpractice scenarios using his or her nursing expertise to save the firm upfront costs, resulting in higher profits and higher compensation to your deserving client. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. You can learn more about how behind the scenes legal nurse consulting can improve your firm's win rates and profitability by following us on LinkedIn or visiting our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com. By following our weekly podcast, you can use your commute to sharpen your own standard of care issue spotting and causation narrative skills. Grow your virtual Rolodex of top nurse consultants of all specialties and discover the MedMal plaintiff attorney's secret weapon for slaying the medical corporate giant. It's time to discover the nurse consultant advantage. Let's get started. Today we have our guest, Susan Wright. Susan is a registered nurse with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from King University. She has experience in NICU, labor and delivery, emergency room, ICU, and home health, and as a director of nursing. Susan began her career in legal nurse consulting in the 1990s. She now works as a legal nurse consultant with M. Salerno and Associates. She and her team can be reached at M. Salerno Experts. Com. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Tell us a little bit and break it down for us because a lot of our listeners are not nurses. And the good thing about nurses is that we're so good at breaking things down because it's what we do every single day. We educate our patients and we break things down for them. Tell us a little bit about what was going on with this patient and layperson's terms. Absolutely. So this young lady presented to an emergency room with a complaint of left flank pain, flank being around the side of the trunk of the body. She was sweating profusely and she was dizzy. And the workup determined that she was actually hemorrhaging from the artery that supplies the, the kidney. So she was taken to a procedure room where that artery was repaired through a procedure called an embolization, which essentially blocks the hole, for lack of better terms, and stops the bleeding. And for the first two days, she did very well. And then on the evening of post-op day two, late evening, she called the nurse and complained once again of left flank pain. She was noted to be quite agitated and she's again sweating profusely. The nurse called the doctor and reported those symptoms along with her vital signs, which were still reasonable. Her blood pressure was still reasonable at that point. And she was given some instructions for medication. And after about an hour, the nurse went back to check on the patient and found that the pain medication had not helped. She was still complaining significantly. She was becoming more agitated. And again, the nurse took vitals. About another hour later, same thing. The nurse reached the doctor again, and this time was given orders for some sort of sedative. And the nurse's notes clearly indicated that the doctor was receiving information on the vital signs and the symptoms. And twice the nurse asked him to please come see the patient and twice he declined. And so now fast forward to about five o'clock in the morning, the patient needed to use the restroom. So she got out of bed 
and went to the bathroom, lost consciousness and fell. And so staff got her back into bed, whereupon she became unresponsive. Labs that were drawn very shortly after that showed that her hemoglobin and hematocrit were critically low. And they hurried up, got a CT scan, learned that that left renal artery had started bleeding again. By the time they managed to figure out what was going on, our patient had sustained a significant anoxic brain injury. So what does that mean, anoxic brain injury? Essentially, her brain was not receiving enough oxygen because it was not receiving enough blood. She was actually bleeding into her abdominal cavity, which was lowering her blood pressure and inhibiting the flow of blood to her brain. Her ultimate outcome was that she was aphasic. She had difficulty with language, especially expressive language. She could understand what was said to her, but she had difficulty expressing herself. So it sounds like essentially she was leaking. Her blood was essentially leaking into her abdomen, which caused that tank to be low. And so even though her heart was pumping, if there's not enough fluid to pump, it doesn't make it, especially against gravity around the brain tissue to be able to give that brain tissue enough oxygen. So that's how that kind of injury can actually cause almost like stroke-like symptoms. Yes, it's very close to stroke symptoms, yes. This particular outcome, if the story were different, could have been a nursing error or could have been a physician error. In this case, it sounds like a physician error. So how are you able to tease that out? The fact that the nurse was taking serial vital signs, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, in a fairly rapid sequence and was reporting it to the physician periodically, that really was a big clue because what we were seeing is heart rate going up, blood pressure going down, which tells us that the heart is trying very hard to keep up with the oxygen needs of the body by speeding up. But because blood pressure was falling, we can see that there's evidence of a bleed going on. And that's the first thing that should have been looked at. It's a known possible complication. People sign consent forms that say, I'm aware that there's a possibility of bleed, there's a possibility of infection, all these things. Why isn't that good enough for the physicians in a situation like this? Signed consent doesn't give anyone license to provide substandard care. And in this case, I believe that's what happened. When you consider that the symptoms that were reported were nearly identical to the symptoms that led that lady to the hospital in the first place three days earlier, someone should have considered a bleed by the time the second set of vitals, because there's a distinct jump in the heart rate and a distinct drop in the blood pressure. So. so it's not even about the fact that the complication occurred. It's the fact that there were clear signs that the complication was occurring and action wasn't taken. Exactly right. Complications happen. That's yeah. it does happen, but when they happen and when we have all of the data in front of us to say hey this is going on, we should be taking action. Is there a recourse for the nurse when she's unable to get the doctor to do something? Was there liability on her part at all? She was not individually named. The hospital was named and the physician was named, but yes, she certainly could have gone to her supervisor, could have gone to someone above the physician's head, like the chief of service, for example. In this case, it would have been the surgical service. 
she definitely could have gone up the chain a bit and didn't. She was relying entirely on the physician who unfortunately declined to go see the patient. And sometimes nurses can over rely on that and forget that we have training and education as well. And we can use those resources to advocate for the patient when we feel like the physician is not fulfilling his role. What about calling a rapid response code? Each hospital has a different terminology for it. Do you know about what those are all about and how those can be integrated into a story like this? Yes. When I was at a community hospital, it was a matter of taking the call bell and yanking the cord out of the wall. Mm-hmm. And that would set off a series of alarms and virtually everybody with a free hand came running. That's an option. Yeah. It seems like since I became a registered nurse, they formalized it, at least within my hospital. And I think it was something that was trending and picking up in the early 2000s that there ought to be a code before the code, something right. where if there's something off, there's something not right. And the nurse just has that gut feeling that something's not right, that she doesn't just have the, Hey, I'll just call the doctor. And Hey, as long as I've called the doctor, I can check that off my box. No, you're an advocate for the patient. And there's more things that you can do. It's not just about covering your own tail. This is about trying to make sure that patient walks out of the hospital. Exactly. So is that primarily why the hospital was named is because of the nursing disciplines failure to activate that when that was available to them? Is that I don't recall, I don't recall that language specifically in the complaint. It, it did broadly state that the hospital itself was negligent. The physician was negligent. And so they were both named. Yeah. Well, this is a, a really good example of how a nurse can tease out who's the primary defendant here. A lot of times there's more than one defendant, but who's that primary defendant and what's the narrative? Because each of the defendants is going to start pointing to the other one. That's but, exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, sure. And so the attorney who is for the plaintiff can get a real sense for what the true narrative is. And in this case, there was another issue that occurred. There was a standing order for a complete blood count that was supposed to go on at six o'clock each morning. And the order for that particular morning was manually changed to a stat complete blood count at 4 a.m. And the initials were those of the physician involved. And that's where a clean chronology created by a medical professional and not an overseas data entry person or a paralegal, but a clean chronology created by a medical professional, a nurse or a nurse practitioner can really help identify because the timing of that seems relevant. Very. The calls were initiated around 11 o'clock in the evening. And the last call was about four o'clock in the morning. And then the patient fell around five. Okay. So it it appeared to me in reviewing it that the physician recognized he should have been doing something more than what he was doing and backed that order up to make it look as if it was ordered before the fall took place. That kind of thing can be identified on an audit trail to be able to identify when exactly that order was truly put in. Exactly. Did that blood ever get drawn? It did. Not at four in the morning because again, the order was altered. But it was drawn at usual blood draw time, which was six in the morning, and it showed an enormous drop in hematocrit and hemoglobin as compared to 24 hours before. So it was actually entered after the fall occurred, but it was ordered as stat before the fall occurred. It appeared to have been ordered as stat before the fall occurred, but it was an alteration in the record. I think that was the doctor having an oh my God moment 
and mm-hmm. realizing that's what should have been done. Yeah, that was a really good call. And like I said, it's important to have a medical professional be able to extract the relevant pieces of information. And I think what nurses can do also is notice what was not done because anybody can pull out what was done, but unless you know what should have been done, you can't notice what was not done. I'm not sure if you noticed that I did not sneeze just now, but I didn't. <laughs> and unless you were playing bingo and marking off every time Elisa sneezed or coughed during the podcast recording, you would not necessarily notice that didn't happen. So if you're a nurse evaluating a particular incident, you know what should have happened. And so you've got a bingo card in your head and marking it off as you go. That's right. Mm -hmm. This case was evaluated by an attorney who turned it down. He felt Um, that this is a known complication. I'm terribly sorry this happened to you, but I don't see where you have a case. And the patient's husband was not satisfied with that. And so sought out a second opinion from another attorney. And that attorney said, I want to have my friend Susan look at this. And that's, then he chose to take the case. So justice was almost not served at all because patients might take for granted if the attorney says, I don't have a case. I don't have a case. Always a good idea to have it reviewed by a medical professional because a patient doesn't get the true justice that they deserve, especially when in cases like this, it sounds like there were ongoing long-term damages. Yes, absolutely. And lost career. She was not able to go back to work and had a four-year-old child that required supervision and care that she could not provide. So it, it was a pretty big deal. We actually also did a life care plan in this case. I would love to have you explain how nurses can help in creating those kind of life care plans and why that makes a difference when talking about damages. Sure. What's involved is reviewing medical records, assessing the patient, talking with family members, collaborating with treating providers, such as physical therapists, physicians, psychologists, et cetera, and essentially creating a roadmap that details the individual's future needs relative to that injury. And in this case, those future needs came out to more than $10 million. And what was the outcome of this case? It was settled. I was told by the referring attorney that the family ended up being quite satisfied. In your experience, what is the difference in the life care plans dollar amount that is generated by a law firm staff versus a life care planner? Do some law firms try and take that on their own? They do sometimes, and I'm not sure quite how they come to the numbers that they choose, but certainly a life care plan has hard numbers for the reader to follow. And if it does go to trial, it's something that the jury can easily follow along with and see why certain things are necessary. I think any of us could surmise that she was going to require medical care of some form throughout Mm -hmm. the rest of her life, but we don't think about the fact that she required attendant care, someone to take care of her. And when we do life care plans, we don't consider the services that might be rendered by family or friends or neighbors because you can't be sure they'll always be there. And so right. they have to be quantified somehow. And when someone requires 24-7 care, it, that's essentially three full-time jobs or three full-time salaries. This is an excellent example of how a nurse can step in and assist a medical malpractice attorney to generate a narrative, understand what happened, and create a very strong case to support and advocate for their client. I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much for being a guest today on our podcast. You're welcome back anytime if you want to share a story to help our legal nurse consultant audience to learn how they can help and to help our attorney audience see how they can utilize nurses to help them with their medical malpractice cases. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Discovering the Needle. 
Nurse consultants help you discover what you didn't know that you didn't know about how to win your medical malpractice case. This podcast is a production of Discovery NP Legal Consultants. Discovery is the largest unified growing force of specialty nurse practitioners offering consulting services to medical malpractice attorneys who take cases for the plaintiff. Nationwide nurse practitioner consultants to the legal profession, or NPCLPs, to request a consultation or to be featured as a legal nurse consultant on our podcast, you may reach us on our website at www.nplegalconsultants.com or by calling 208-779-1990. That's 208-779-1990.